I'm back as inconsistent as ever, but as promised to talk about the right to fish and hunt, going to do an entire episode deep dive on this um, to kind of explain what this means to folks in Florida that uh, the legislation that recently passed HHJR 1157 and uh, SJR 1234, what they mean because I've gotten a bajillion questions about, so does that mean we have a right to hunt and fish now or what's going on? So uh, if you're new here, this is not a typical podcast, although none of them are typical anymore. My name is Travis Thompson. This is Cast and Blast Florida podcast and it's brought to you by Hallett Insurance. Fletcher Hallett, 904-315-5812. That is his cell phone number, y'all. So you can just call, text him. If you're in the state of Florida, you have any kind of insurance needs, give Hallett a call. Let him run your rates. Let him compare. Call him and talk to him about insurance. I got a lesson on how the insurance industry works and the legislative session and everything else a couple weeks ago. So 904-315-5812. Fhallett at HallettInns.com. Double the L's, double the T's. Hallett for all your insurance needs. So, um, I've been talking a ton. I've been talking a ton. Mike Elfenbein's been talking a ton. You've seen it probably from all the hunting fishing groups been talking a ton about the uh, legislation I mentioned a minute ago, 1157 and 1234, the constitutional right to fish and hunt for the state of Florida. So um, I'm probably going to give you guys some information I've given you before, but I'm doing this as a little bit of a baseline so we just have this information out there so you can like share this episode around. If someone's got questions about it, this should clear it up. Um, so the, the, let's start with, do we need a right to hunt and fish? Because that's always the first question that comes up. And most people would say, yes, there's always threats to hunting. There's threats coming to fishing, you know, and and I, I, I'm on that team. I, I, I buy that. But if you were to, we've talked ad nauseum over the years about Shane Mahoney, the North American model of wildlife conservation, how all that works. And there's three reasons consumptive use exists in North America. One is the idea of subsistence. You, you should be able to go get food and gather food as, as you want. Like historically, that's why hunting and fishing existed, right? Like, the pilgrims wanted to be able to go out and shoot a turkey or a deer or whatever so that they could have something to eat for Thanksgiving. Um, don't correct me if that's historically inaccurate. You get the point that I'm making. So so that's that's historically why it existed. And then uh, over time, you know, we we overhunted a lot of animals for, for markets. Uh, the passenger pigeon comes to mind. Um, we almost drove the wood duck to extinction white-tailed deer in the southeastern United States through disease and overhunting were driven nearly to extinction. Plume hunting was really big for fashion uh, around the turn of the or the 20th century, early 1900s. And so um, there was there was a revisiting kind of a a uh, a up upwelling of conservation mindsets. Jo- uh, George Bird Grinnell and Teddy Roosevelt and uh, John Muir and all these guys kind of kind of push these ideals of, well, if we're going to take these animals, we need to protect them and we also need to fund them. And so we talk a lot about the North American model of conservation, but within kind of the context of that is the idea that hunters and fishers traditionally and in most states still pay for hunting and fishing to exist. They pay for a lot of the land that the animals exist on. Um, 
think it's 98% of the duck stamp goes to the National Wildlife Refuge Program. So it's not to say all the NWRs are acquired with duck stamp money because there were some that were donated. There were some that were acquired in other methods, but the vast majority acquired through duck stamp dollars. Um, and then you also have uh, uh, funding for like state WMAs and things like that, it's particularly in Florida. So uh, I, I think when we talked about the wildlife corridor in, in Florida, 20% of the wildlife corridor, so one in five acres in the most ballyhooed conservation ideal out there uh, were acquired with sportsman's dollars historically so serious serious idea behind funding exists and is important for uh, for for hunting and fishing to exist the funding is an important reason for hunting and fishing to exist caught myself in my sentence structure um, but as I've talked about before and I've talked about other places in Florida we've I'll say the word broken the way that funding model works. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It just means we've changed the way that funding gets to our wildlife agency. So instead of hunters and fishers being the heaviest carriers of that funding, it's actually dock stamps on house sales. And I don't know if you guys have looked around, but we sell a metric ton of houses. That's an exact number. And every one of those sales, there's a there's a dock stamp fee that goes to the state that helps fund fish and wildlife conservation. We also have a gas tax in the state of Florida that goes to help fund fish and wildlife conservation. So the the viability of hunting as a funding model is kind of faded away in the state of Florida. The viability is hunting as, of hunting and fishing as a subsistence model. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's definitely not the best way to go about getting, well, well that's a subjective sentence. There are probably cheaper ways to go about getting food than hunting and fishing, but particularly the way most of us pursue it. Um, so I'm not talking about the guy walking down to the corner and catching a few brim off of his bucket while he's smoking a cigar. Um, that still exists out there. So if you don't have those two things propping up the reason to have hunting and fishing or consumptive use on the landscape, you need to have a right. You need to have a constitutional protection Otherwise, there's no reason to keep it around. And this is not my math. This is Shane Mahoney. This is Valerius Geis. This is, you know, Aldo Leopold doesn't say this, but this is kind of codified and contextualized within the North American model. That Those are really the three ways that this works. So subsistence, funding, or a right. Those are the three reasons consumptive use exists in, in the North American model. So, um, what happened this past session is in the state of Florida, there are three ways for, for something to become a right, you have to vote on it. And to vote on it has to go on the uh, uh, ballot for a constitutional amendment. And um, we, th there are three ways to get something on the ballot for a constitutional amendment, to my knowledge, not a constitutional scholar, particularly a state constitutional scholar. But the three ways are you can get... Uh, you can get the Constitutional Review Committee to add something as an amendment if you voted on. I think that happens every 20 years, and it just happened. So if we were going to go that route, 2040 is the next next go round we'd have, next chance we'd have to, to be able to do that. Um, second way is you can get 8%. I'm going to be a little bit wrong because I don't have it in front of me. I think it's 8% of the uh, 
voters who participated in the last presidential election. So for the state of Florida, that number, I think, is 891,000 people. You'd have to get them to sign a petition, but not like a change.org petition, like an actual petition that can be verified with the secretary of state or supervisor of elections or something in the state. Um, and then those signatures can't just be like all 891,000 from like Orange County. They have to be spread again across multiple counties. And it's, it's a cumbersome process. It's an onerous process. And it's to keep the Constitution from being changed easily. The third way you can do it is by getting the House and Senate, both chambers of the Florida legislature, to approve a resolution to allow something to go on the ballot as a constitutional amendment which is the route that was taken here. So let's talk really quickly about, um, well, first, I'm going to say this. If you're listening, and I'm, I'm flying through this, so I'm happy to answer questions. But again, I wanted to put this out there as a benchmark because so many people have so many questions about this. And I'm going to get to how it works in a second. But um, first, what is this constitutional right that we're, we're talking about? I'm going to read you the language, okay? This is really quick. It's like four sentences. It's not even a paragraph. Fishing, hunting, and the taking of fish and wildlife, including by the use of traditional methods, shall be preserved forever as a public right and preferred means of responsibly managing and controlling fish and wildlife. This section does not limit the authority granted to the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission under Section 9, Article 9. So it does not mean that suddenly you don't need a fishing license anymore it does not mean that fwc can no longer arrest you for killing 74 turkeys it simply means that we are empowered by the state of florida to have the right to hunt and fish so why does that matter well you know what before i get to that i have some some things well no i will do that why does that matter um and, and here's here's why we went through this language carefully. And I'll pause here and say um, kudos to Luke, Luke Hilgeman and the team from International Order of T. Roosevelt. Like, they were incredible to work with on this. But I'd also be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to, um, and I'll leave somebody out, I always do. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to uh, John Colclasher and Mark Lance from Con- Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. They've been on the podcast before. And, and really they pushed hard on this language to make it, make sure it included traditional methods and uh, preferred means of, of managing wildlife were, were included in there because this is language that's been proven and used around the country. So I think there are 24, 23 states that have a right to hunt and fish. And I'm again, don't have this in front of me in my notes, but I, it might be 21 that have the right to hunt and fish and two that have a right to fish. Um, that brings us up to 23 that have some kind of constitutional amendment. But I know Vermont's was the first, it was passed in like the 1790s. And then another one wasn't passed until the 1990s. I think it was Alabama. And um, since then, some of the States that passed them have actually gone back and passed them again or amended them again to kind of match up this language, traditional methods and preferred means um, as, as super important things. And, I get the question, so why does that matter? If this doesn't take away anything from FWC, why does that matter? And I think we have to look no further than um, than a couple of things. One is, 
it protects protects traditional methods at the time of passage. So what that means is we can't suddenly start going and harpooning whales again. You can't you can't you know suddenly go back and use a punt gun to take out sixty four ducks. Traditional methods is what is defined as legal at the time of passage. And it doesn't prohibit something like that from being uh, revisited in the future, but it does make it a little bit harder to revisit in the future because, say, in 10 years, someone wanted to ban compound bows. Um, They are considered a traditional method if this passes the ballot in 2024, and it would be more difficult to um, outlaw them. Could still put restrictions around them through the agency process, but... Couldn't outline them. I'll outlaw them. Another thing that's important in all of this is some people have said, well, we already have this as a statute. And I think it's 379.104, Florida statute. State of Florida recognizes that people should have the right to hunt and fish. And yes, that's true. That is a statute that's out there. Um, That could be changed next legislative session. Do I think it will? Absolutely not. But that could be changed at the whim of you know, basically whoever is in the the legislature and you get enough people, you make some trades around and suddenly you could remove that statute. Um, And we've talked, I think it's 379.105, which is continuation of that is the hunter harassment statute, which has been problematic for us in the past. So um, not sure I want to die on the statute hill, uh, particularly when we don't have, if you look at, the conversation around this, a lot of people love to talk around the idea of Oregon almost passed a ballot measure, what was it, two years ago, came within like 20,000 votes of making it illegal to hunt and fish and trap. And everyone everyone kind of points to that as, hey, that's coming. I don't know that that's specifically what's coming. Like, like that's a big gnarly enemy that you can see. I think more of what we see in Florida is a just, and I've talked about this before, but a slight shift towards mutualism, a a slight shift in how we view animals and wildlife um, less as resources, more as um, cohabitants of this planet. And I think, you know, I'm not saying that's a binary one way or the other, but I am saying um, I've, I firmly believe that, that, those animals are managed well when they are managed for consumptive use. You can go back historically and you could line up Shane Mahoney. If you've never listened to Shane Mahoney talk, he's got a podcast out there where he gives a bunch of speeches and you can go listen to him. And I'm telling you, he sounds like a, um, that transatlantic accent in a Presbyterian minister from like the turn of the century. He talks like this and he's got the timber in his voice and his pronunciations and, Oh man, he's fascinating to listen to. But if you go listen to him talk about it, you know, if you said we can no longer hunt white-tailed deer, the impetus to protect white-tailed deer doesn't exist in the same way anymore. You can argue with me and you can say I'm wrong, but like historically we've shown this over and over and over again across the country that even in an area that has, look at Tennessee or Virginia with their elk, elk restocking efforts, by opening up, a singular tag or a set of five tags, the amount of money that they generate for continuing the elk restocking, improving habitats, et cetera, is huge. And it's simply because it's generated off of those animals. So if you want more animals, you should make those animals available to hunt 
because then you will ensure that there are more animals. Another thing that's undisputed, um, you can look to Cornell University and Audubon have both claimed, you know, bird numbers are kind of down around the world. And most people tend to think there's a couple of factors in this. Um, I've heard the windmill idea tossed around a lot. I'm not saying it's not part of it, but I've heard the windmill deal tossed around a lot. I've also heard the, uh, the cats, feral cats impact bird numbers in, in huge numbers, songbirds and, and Tweety birds and of the like the ilk, the two bird groups that we've seen go up in population in the last, whatever, 30 years are birds of prey, tremendous protections around birds of prey. And we've lessened the impact with chemicals because they were so susceptible to DDT back in the, whatever that was, seventies, eighties and waterfowl. And Waterfowl, both Cornell University and Audubon, neither of them hunting organizations, would tell you that the main reason that ducks and geese are doing so well is because of sportsmen, because of the dollars sportsmen have put back into waterfowl habitat. And with groups like Delta Waterfowl, with groups like Ducks Unlimited, with the NWR system, with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, um, we've got probably arguably as many ducks and geese as we've had in decades and some somebody was talking last year um, about how we thought the numbers were down on certain ducks and it was i forget the number i think we were around 36 million birds in north america ducks and geese waterfowl and if you look back at like the grand passage years of the 50s um, estimates showed that around 40 million ducks and geese so we're not that far off. And I mean, in the last several years, we've been over 40 million before. So kind of fluctuates up and down, you know, you get a wet year, you get a dry year. We know that there's a cycle to that breeding, but if you want more animals on the landscape, allow people to touch those animals, allow people to take those animals. This is also a, a thing that I think gets a little dicey and I'm injecting my opinion here, a little dicey on the fisheries front, because, um, as you get into catch and release fishing, to me, that becomes a slippery slope, particularly in Florida, as you look at species like the game species, the big value species for us, your inshore snook, redfish, trout, fish that are decent on the table, but also kind of viewed as worth more as an economic driver for the sport fish industry. Um, if you continue to kind of shave away at the take of some of those um I don't know that in my lifetime you see any kind of issues, but I definitely think you're heading down a road that um could could give you some problems in the future and and we see that again we've seen that in the uh, in the uh animal industry or the animal world the the game world sorry fish and game so i'm gonna tell you the other reason this is kind of important and um, north carolina passed this a couple years ago and in court uh it has been challenged by some gill netters so they, they, they want to reestablish gill netting uh, in North Carolina coastal waters. And I'm going to read to you the, the court. This is in a, in a uh, decision or I'm sorry, in some trial notes from the from the court. The court basically said the right to hunt and fish does not exist in the abstract. Oh, North Carolina's language is kind of the premise for the language that we have here. The right to hunt and fish does not exist in the abstract. The public must have access to harvestable wildlife and fish to have meaningful opportunity to exercise these rights. It goes on to say the inclusion of shall forever be preserved and holds that in some both the plain language and history of Article 1, 
their, their articles, support the conclusion that this provision imposes an affirmative duty of the state to preserve the people's right to fish and harvest fish. This includes some duty to preserve fisheries for the benefit of the public. So in other words, if you have a right to hunt and fish, there has to exist the opportunity to exercise those rights. So that means the state could never say, and, and FWC, you know, we've, we've, I, I joke all the time. FWC is like my brother. I can pick on him, but you can't like, I'm, I'm protective of that agency because everyone I've met. There is a good person trying to do good things. Don't always agree in the rules that they make. Um, but, but I think they, they definitely try to do a good job with a lot of what they do. If FWC though changed hands and suddenly we had anti hunters in there, the Oregon situation type deal happened. And suddenly we had anti hunters running the commission. We had an anti hunters governor and we had anti hunters overrunning um, the wildlife agency and saying, you know what, you, you need to just, you need to cut back. You can't ban hunting because they've got the right to hunt and fish, but you know what we should do? We should limit it to just one WMA. In that case, using, using case law that we've already seen, you could make the argument that they're not providing the opportunity for the citizens of the state to hunt and fish. Um, so it's super important super important that we codify this now um, and that we get these protections in place now. Say you don't hunt and fish. Why does this matter to you? Um, and I kind of teased that out a little bit when I was, when I was talking about, you know, uh, that if you want more of an animal, I talked about the elk in Virginia and Tennessee. If you want more of an animal, one of the best things you can do is, is create a way for someone to pursue that animal because it'll generate huge funding for conservation. Uh, I mentioned earlier the wildlife corridor. 20% of the wildlife corridor is uh, was funded with sportsman's dollars. It's not my, Travis's number. That's from Archibald. They did a presentation at a at a conference we went to last year. And um, I think it's one point or 19.6% of the wildlife corridor was acquired with sportsman's dollars. Um, so again, one in five acres. A lot of the wildlife corridor also exists in national forests, which um, are used for timber, but also often provide hunting access. They're not paid for with sportsman's dollars, but allowing access on them does generate a, generate a revenue for the state and a matching dollar fund from the feds. So there's a, a uh, secondary or tertiary benefit there from a dollar amount to the state. Um, and then, I'll, you know, when we look at the wildlife corridor moving forward, the numbers that get tossed around, and these are not hard, fast numbers. You could go dig into them and come up to your own. But the numbers that have kind of always been tossed around are to conserve the, fully the wildlife corridor in the state of Florida, you'd have to conserve 18 million acres, and we're at just under 10 million acres today. So we're roughly halfway there. Um, to get there at this point, like we're not going to go out and acquire all that land in fee simple or less than fee acquisitions because the land is worth too much money. So primarily what we do today is we, we look into things um, called conservation easements where we will pay a landowner essentially buying the conservation rights to that property. So the landowner still holds the property. Uh, oftentimes in an easement, they can continue to graze cattle or work the lands or whatever. Um, sometimes they get paid to hold water. But there's an idea that we're going to pay you some dollar amount for the conservation rights of this land, but it's not going to be the full dollar amount that the land would be worth with houses on it 
but you don't want houses. You just want some money. And we, we settled this out somewhere in the, in the middle, um, within the context of that, you, if you think about it and I, I don't have a, a spreadsheet in front of me that tells you what a landowner is going to make or not make or anything else. But if let's say a land is, let's say land is worth 10,000 an acre, um, as a, as an outright acquisition, you got a thousand acres. So it's worth what? $10 million. If we could, if we put that into a conservation easement, maybe the landowner ends up with $2 million, 15, $1.5 million, something like that. They can continue to work their cattle on it. In, in this instance, in my mind, it's a cattle rancher. They can continue to work their cattle on it. So they're still deriving some le- level of revenue uh, off, off the land with their cattle, but they can also run things like hunts or agritourism or whatever on that land. And in this case, hunting or fishing could provide another revenue stream for that landowner. So when you talk about the the wildlife corridor, you know, 20% of it is acquired with sportsman's dollars. Probably another 30% of it is through federal dollar acquisitions. And then we have some chunk that is done through private, private holdings and private lands. Um, I don't have that percentage in front of me. But even on some of those private holdings, private lands, those landowners are able to generate revenue off having hunting and fishing. And it's an incentive to keep that land wild to make sure the habitat exists for turkeys and deer and quail, the things that people want to hunt. But as an ancillary benefit to that, you also see your gopher tortoises thrive. You also see your black bears thrive. You also see your Florida panthers thrive. So it's a it's a it's a thing that is almost indisputed that if you want more of wild Florida, you should want more hunters and fishermen because the more hunters and fishermen you have, the more demand there is for things to be wild because people want to hunt and fish in wild places. Um, We've talked before about restricted hunting areas and housing and everything else. And I have made the argument multiple occasions that there's an idea that you could use a restricted hunting area and you'd have to go back and dig through this a couple of years back. You could, this was the idea that we, we were going to put a buffer off of houses that you had to hunt from in Florida. There was an idea that you could use development to force people off of lakes. And then when you did that, you could actually treat those lakes in a way so that you did not have vegetation. You kind of diminish the habitat for both fish and wildlife. You want more fish and game, have more fishermen and hunters. It's, I, I, I can't draw you a better picture than that. So um, the other thing that's really interesting, and I say this in no way reductive to to um, the ranching community because some of my best friends in the world are ranchers. Um, one of my favorite people on the planet is Matt Pierce, and he's a rancher. I think it's really interesting in the wildlife corridor neg- narrative. Uh, I went and saw Path of the Panther, the film. It's incredible. By the way, it's streaming on Disney Plus now. You can go see it. It's incredible, and I think they do an incredible job of telling the story of Florida through the through the eyes of um, this one singular charismatic animal. But, and I, I always get myself in a little bit of trouble when I talk about this. A rancher has kind of been celebrated now because a rancher is what's going to save the rest of the wildlife corridor. Like that's not up for debate. There's no no conversation. If we're going to save the rest of the wildlife corridor, it's going to take cattlemen to do it. Um. But ranchers are kind of, so they're kind of the heroes in that story. A rancher is raising an animal to be slaughtered. Like at the, at the end of the day, the idea of ranching is you are raising, and I, these people care deeply about cows. Um, I've ridden around with them and, and 
day after day. Like they're just, I'm, I'm looking at birds. I'm looking at habitat, et cetera, et cetera. They are looking at cows constantly because they love them. I mean, it, that is a, a love of their, <laughs> they love their wives, they love their kids and they love cattle. But a rancher raises an animal to provide food ultimately is, is the idea behind it. And sportsmen have never really been celebrated in a romantic way through the concept of the corridor. But I think we're starting to see that, that uh, table turn a little bit because a sportsman is ultimately raising an animal. Once an animal raised, they're not physically raising it or not bottle feeding it or anything else, but they ultimately, they want an animal raised so that they can take it and provide food for their family. They want to pursue that animal in a wild and pure way and they want to take food for their family. And so the analogy falls apart a lot after this point because ranchers have heavy investment in equipment. Ranchers have heavy investment in, in the land. Ranchers have generational investments oftentimes in a lot of that stuff. Um, the sportsman is paying a WMA fee or they're, they're paying an access fee or they're paying a private landowner, you know, some kind of a lease fee. But at the basis of elements, the ideal is the same. Both are, are raising an animal that will ultimately turn into food and both really want to preserve and protect what is left of wild Florida. And both really care about that land that those animals exist on. And I think that's a powerful thing to think about when you, when you consider um, what's coming in 2024, because again, we talk heavily about ranchers in the wildlife corridor. We don't talk so much about sportsmen. And I, I think there's room for both in that conversation. Again, I'll say this carefully for the second time, I don't in any way want that to be reductive to the ranching community because those people are heroes of conservation. That is, that is just a plain and simple fact, but it is, it is more than past time that we, we celebrate sportsmen in that conversation as well. Um, so what happens now? What's next on the, uh, right to hunt and fish. Now we wait, um, we prepare, we educate, we build a coalition. So the part of the reason I wanted to come out here and throw this podcast up is so that we could get it on the record kind of as how all this works, how the movie parts works, why it matters, why it's important. So you had a point of reference in case this comes up with one of your friends, in case this comes up around the water cooler at work or whatever, because for this to pass in the state of Florida, we're going to need 60% of the residents of the state, the, the voters, 60% of those who vote, we're going to need to them to vote yes for a constitutional right to fish and hunt um four million fishermen in the state two hundred seventy three thousand hunters in the state we need every one of them to show up and vote yes on on this uh amendment and that's going to take some doing because if everyone in the state voted that means we we got 21 half million people in the state that means if you take the fishermen and hunters out there's 16 million people still out there that don't fish or hunt, presumably. So how are we going to get some subset of them to vote for this? And, you know, people say all the time, this is about hunting. This is about heritage. And and I've said that stuff before. It is true. I, I, I believe preserving this way of life, protecting this way of life uh, is important to protecting wild Florida. But ultimately, I think this is about conservation. I think this is a conservation move through and through i think if it's not about conservation one we have no leg to stand on and two um if you don't view it that way it's going to be problematic for the future of our state so um anyway please make sure that everyone you know is prepared to vote for this when it comes time 
the other thing you you like to do, and I'm not smart on this stuff. I'm not. I'm not. I've never run a campaign like that or anything else, and so not that I would even be considered to do so. But something I've been told by some people that operate in the space is you want to keep your powder dry until it's time to fire the bullet. And that analogy is really sound. There's no reason to go drum up a whole bunch of people, you know, in July of 2023 around the right to hunt and fish when we're going to devote on it in November of 2024. A lot of stuff is going to transpire in that next year. And so we're going to need, I mean, I don't, I don't know the timeline on it. Maybe it's six months ahead of the election. Maybe it's three months ahead of the election. Maybe it's a year ahead of the election. I, that's not my, that's not my forte to know that stuff. Um, but we have some really smart people that are involved in this now. And um, a whole lot of people have gotten on board. Again, I'm going to leave somebody out, but when you looked at the press conference that was done in Tallahassee to celebrate the right to fish and hunt, which I missed because um, I was on a plane that I was convinced was going to crash. And if you haven't heard that story, I'll tell it on another podcast. But uh, I think we had American Sport Fish Association. We had CCA Florida. We had uh, uh, Florida Guides Association. So right there on the fishery side, we had the industry in ASA. We had the membership in CCA and we had the guides represented with FGA. And then on the sportsman side, we had Delta waterfowl. We had congressional sportsmen. We had SCI. We had national shooting sports foundation, which is the industry for all shooting sports, um, both gun and, and sportsmen. We had ducks unlimited was there. We had safari club there. Uh, like I said, I'm, I know I'm going to leave somebody out. Huge representation. When you, when you look at everybody that was there that day, um, that came from around and that was on short notice. We had like three days to put that press conference together. So really exciting when you think about how we can build out this coalition and the people that we're seeing together now, you know, I work when I work on all Florida stuff, uh, you guys know that I cross a lot of disciplines. I'll go work with the land conservation people and then I'll go work with the species people and I'll work with the fisheries people and I'll work with the hunting people and that's part of what makes all Florida a beautiful concept in my mind is that we're able to kind of cross all those disciplines. But it was really refreshing to see, at least on the sportsman's and consumptive use side, all those people coming together um, in front of the Capitol. And I'm really hopeful that as this goes along, we're going to see some of the conservation groups get on board with it as well, because I think there's a tremendous opportunity there for them to um to throw in with people that have been supporting the stuff that they've been supporting a long time and that ultimately want the same things they want, which is more wild Florida and, and being able to touch more wild Florida, share more wild Florida. So here we are, we are waiting. We're, uh, we're educating. That's, that's the point of this. Um, make sure you have your water cooler talks and just kind of keep an eye on this spot, so to speak. Um, you know, on my social medias, on this podcast, on whatever else we have access to. We're going to make sure to communicate about this, obviously, as it unfolds. I do want to, again, mention a huge thank you to Representative Lauren Mello. Um, I have said before some pretty dogged things about the legislature in the state of Florida. I don't remember exactly what or I would tell you, but um, I've written them pretty hard before. Lauren came up as a champion on this, like, this was a hard road to hoe behind the scenes. I can't even get into the details of some of the war she had to fight to just get this done. And 
off the, it, it's funny it passed 154 to one which is the most bo- bipartisan support it's ever had in any state it's ever it's ever uh, been been done as a resolution like this uh, 154 to one incredible 116 to nothing in the house and what was it, 38 to one in the senate and the one nay vote was actually a protest vote about an issue uh, completely unrelated to to hunting and fishing so you know it feels pretty good that you can look at this and say it is not a partisan issue uh, i always worried I always worry about hunting and fishing issues, conservation issues in general, when they become politicized because they, be, they become divisive. Well, I'm a Democrat, so I have to side with that. Or, oh, I'm a Republican, I have to side with that. When, when we get there, we lose this issue. And you guys can have all the issues you want under those two tents, but this particular issue is so important to me, and I just don't want it under one of those tents because it matters to everybody. And, and I, I know people on both sides of the aisle that care deeply about these things and and this thing so um was really refreshing to see such a bipartisan uh overwhelmingly bipartisan vote in support of this and um really hoping that's that's an indicator of how it will move going down the line and that we can pass it you know with some snoozer of a vote where 85 percent of the people vote vote yes for it that's that's what we hope will happen but um the other the other kind of groups i wanted to i just kind of wanted to talk about and share about really quick really briefly are um how how for wildlife um how how.org i think is their website i've been on their podcast before charles whitwam john stallone those guys um, they have built a platform out for corresponding with legislators that is unlike anything i've ever seen before and i've uh, after session, now that the session's over, I might have a conversation with them about uh, some other uses for that platform in Florida, you know, even outside the hunting and fishing realm, maybe just in the general conservation realm as a communication tool. Uh, I think from how alone we ended up sending about 50,000 emails, 55,000 emails, something like that, to just um, in little behind the scenes inside baseball, those were handwritten individually generated letters so they weren't always the same form letter from the same form sent to the same person over and over and over again um, which really added a strange and unique flavor to it in a great way so it didn't look like there was a randomized pattern well if it was a randomized pattern anyway there was a lot of stem type mathy science that charles and company put together behind the scenes that made that thing work. And it was huge for creating pressure for lawmakers to pay attention to this legislation, which is, is what we needed at the time. Uh, the other group that I'd love to, I'd love to thank on here is um, Delta waterfowl because I say this all the time. Um, I think for hunt duck hunting, which near and dear to my heart to be successful in Florida, Delta waterfowl has to be successful in Florida because they are truly the duck hunters organization. And I don't say that in a reductive way at all to Ducks Unlimited. I love Ducks Unlimited. Um, but Delta Water, Ducks Unlimited is habitat. Delta Waterfowl is way more in the trenches on hunters. Although Ducks Unlimited, to their credit, stepped up big on this and signed a letter of support and uh, had people at the Capitol and everything else. But th- what I'm mentioning about Delta is from day one when I called them, um, they jumped in. They said, what do you need? What can we do for you? Uh, do you need our action alerts, et cetera, et cetera? We had the howl alert working already for email alerts. Um, 
but using Delta's tool, we were able to do text alerts and having that tool in the toolbox in such a quick way, quick, the, the ability to turn it around so fast was a huge benefit to us too. So I don't know how many emails we ended up sending between the Delta tool, the Howl tool, Safari club used their tool. CCA put something out. Um, there were, there, there's another one I'm missing. Some, Oh, BHA did one, <coughs> excuse me. Backcountry hunters and anglers uh, you let us use their platform as well. But between all those, uh, we had to be pushing 60, 65,000 correspondences with lawmakers, which is just unheard of uh, in this day and age. So really proud of that, really excited about that. But it goes to show that the infrastructure is kind of out there and the, the team is out there and assembled and um, proud of where we are at and looking forward to where we're going and uh, looking looking forward to a wild Florida existing for um I think it was Roosevelt said generations still in the womb of time that will be able to uh, enjoy hunting, fishing, and the things that we love. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to enjoy it on public lands. Hopefully they'll be able to enjoy it on private lands. And, you know, we, we've kind of carved our name into a tree that's going to be here for a long, long time. So that is the right to hunt and fish in a nutshell. Hope I didn't offend anyone. Hope I didn't upset anyone. But those are my quick hit thoughts, and I talked for almost 40 minutes about it. Um, give Fletcher a call if you don't have insurance and you're in the state of Florida or you want to shop your insurance, 904-315-5812. Thank you guys all so much for listening. And uh, commission meeting this week, so I'm going to try to do a recording while I'm on the road and get you guys some thoughts from the commission meeting. New executive director being named, Goliath Grouper's on the docket, Snook is on the docket, Trapping's on the docket, gonna be uh, a, a bit of a show down there in miami so and i've got a fishing pole because the peacock bass are all over the lagoon that's next to the hotel so gonna see if we can do that legally somehow and catch peacock bass but y'all have a great week thanks for listening and y'all stay woke mm-hmm.